0: I see a lot of people in my clinic setting who are tired. They come feeling tired, and they don't understand why. And when you, or, or they've maybe had one thing I haven't touched on is the immune suppression that happens with mm. low energy availability, and they just don't understand why. And actually, when you pick it apart, like it's not surprising that that person is tired. They're they're pushing their body on on not enough fuel, and mm. and so I think it's easy to look for other solutions, isn't it? And hope that everything else is okay but actually I think if we are really critical of what we're asking and what we're putting into our bodies then we can usually make sense of that kind of thing and and the early identification and adjustment is key you Mm -hmm. know we're not asking people to eat huge amounts that make them feel uncomfortable it's not about that it's about eating enough so Mm -hmm. that you're not in that deficit
1: This is The Metal Set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Ofshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. Concussions, shoulder troubles, ACL tears, low bone density, low energy availability, menopause. Sports and injuries from it tend to impact female athletes in a different way to their male counterparts. Yet, it is only now that awareness and medical research have ramped up around the gender differences in sports medicine. Joining us on today's show to discuss some of the most pressing issues in female athlete health is Dr. Kate Jordan, a sports and exercise medicine physician at MediClinic Parkview Hospital in Dubai. Dr. Jordan has worked with elite athletes throughout her career. She's been with international teams at the London 2021 Olympics and Glasgow 2014 Commonwealth Games. She has also been with the British Olympic team, Scottish rugby and football and at the Scottish Institute of Sports. Dr. Jordan is currently working with British Swimming for World Rugby as a tournament director and a medical educator and in anti-doping. Having treated a wide range of illnesses and injuries in elite sport, Dr. Jordan shares insights from her personal experiences with patients and current research around female health. She also demystifies female health concerns and talks about the need to look closely at the performance versus long-term health balance. This is the first of our two-part interview with Dr. Jordan, where we explore common injuries in female athletes, low energy availability, disordered eating, and the right fueling for performance and health. Tune in next week for part 2 where we discuss training during the menstrual cycle, hormones and menopause as well. We would like to add that this is a general discussion on female athlete health and any information in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not intend to substitute a personal consultation with a physician, diagnosis or treatment if you have any health concerns. Enjoy! Dr. Jordan, we are so excited to have you on the show finally because you have been on our guest wish list for a while now especially because a lot of the athletes that we have interviewed uh, since we launched the podcast in October, uh, Melina Timpson who you may know, Tara Sahab who you may know, have spoken really really highly about you.
2: Yes, we've got so many questions and You know, you are one of the best in the business, in the sports (laughs) medicine business in the UAE. And you've had an extensive career um, working with international teams, including the British Olympic team, Scottish rugby and football and the Scottish Institute of Sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And now, along with the work that you do with patients at MediClinic, uh, you're currently working with British swimming and for world rugby as a tournament doctor and a medical educator. Yeah. right. That is a lot
2: of that credentials. A- <laughs> and that
1: means you're busy and traveling all the time. So getting you on the show, that's a get. Yeah, we really appreciate it.
2: I guess we're really looking forward to the chat. We have a lot of questions for you. And we've also asked some of our listeners to send in questions. But we want to put the caveat today that we're tapping into your knowledge and for general information. And if anyone out there listening has any specific concerns, we really recommend that you seek professional medical <laughs> advice. Yeah, that's a good
0: caveat. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you've worked with so many international teams and so many athletes over the years. You've probably seen and treated every issue and concern that is in the book now, I guess. Um, yeah, I've
0: seen a lot of stuff across uh, <laughs> across different sports. And I guess that's the cool thing about my profession is that I work across sport and each sport has its own unique um raft of problems right like uh I always talk about swimming as a really unusual sport, like if aliens came down to earth and looked at us pulling ourselves along in water with their <laughs> arms, you'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, I guess it's the same for cycling, like what's this machine you're riding yeah. along? And, and so we, with every sport, there are these unique um, injury and illness patterns that go with that. Of course, there's a load of commonalities across sport mm. as well. Mm. So, yeah, I've been lucky to have worked in, in a, a few different sports so far.
1: So one of the crucial reasons we have you on the show and, you know, just from our history on um, highlighting women in sports, uh, a lot of what we are going to discuss today is around uh, female athlete health. You know, things like hormones, uh, what are the specific injuries that impact them? So with the uh, work that you have done with all the international teams in swimming rugby and also the patients that you see at the moment what are the common injuries and issues that women come up to you for yeah
0: so I guess we as women we're prone to different types of injuries as we go through our sporting lives and in our early sporting lives we tend to follow a much more similar injury pattern to men, I would say. Acknowledging that we are very different to men in lots of ways, but depending on the sport that you do, the injury pattern will be pretty similar. So, you know, it really does depend on the sport. But, you know, in swimmers, we see lots of shoulder problems. In runners, we see knee, ankle, hip problems. In rugby, we see lots of contact injuries, so trauma-related problems. And that's the same across women and men. And, and, um, you know, I worked in women and men's uh, rugby for example and a lot of the injuries that we would see would be the same. There's some interesting differences particularly in contact sports like concussion is much more common in women than men double the amount of of concussions in women than men Um, no one really knows why that is but we know that's the case and so we think it's multifactorial so there's uh, things to do with hormones to do with our menstrual cycle to do with the elasticity of our tissues as we go through our menstrual cycle there's a bit to do with uh, strength so particularly neck strength like there's some good evidence that concussion risk goes up if your neck strength is worse and women's neck strength tends to be worse than men's. So work specifically on that can reduce that that risk. There's other things, that, again, in, in contact sport, but also in in um, gym goers, I guess, things like uh, ACL injuries, more common in females. That's hit the press really recently with loads of injuries in in women's football and rugby recently, uh, high profile ACL injuries. And again, multifactorial, we know that's to do with how women move. The Q angle, which is the angle between our hips and our knees is different to men. So our pelvises are wider to have babies. Uh, can't change that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that angle means that we put a little bit more stress on landing through the ACL we know that in general our stability is maybe a little bit worse inherently and that's trainable for sure and then we also know that there's a factor again of menstrual cycles so we know Mm -hmm. women are much more likely to rupture their ACLs around the middle of their cycle around ovulation time so we see differences there in the kind of early years and then as women move through towards um, perimenopause so into 40s and 50s there becomes a really kind of obvious pattern that I see, and I, this is particularly in clinic, of tendon injuries in, in okay. women and specifically around our pelvis. Mm-hmm. So there's a really interesting bit of research that's just come out of Australia on glute med tendinopathy. So your glute med tendon is the tendon that connects your bum muscle to your hip bone, okay. so uh, your femur. And glute med tendonopathy is almost exclusively seen in women over the age of 40 so 40s and 50s mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting uh, you know it's it is seen in men too but almost exclusively and and it's so common I, I probably see three a week in my clinic uh, at the moment I work two days in clinic so that's quite a lot oh. of, of mm-hmm. people per week and this research that was done in Australia showed that you know for, for a long time we've known that exercise is important for gluteal tendinopathy. We work on strengthening the tendon, we work on lumbo pelvic stability capacity. So we see it a lot in runners. We also mm-hmm. see it in women who are walking. But this research looked at exercise. It also looked at. HRT so using hormone replacement Mm -hmm, therapy and what it found was so they randomized the groups they gave them different exercise programs and HRT or no HRT and they found that the only thing that made a difference to outcome was whether the woman got HRT or not Uh so like for me that's been pretty practice changing that Mm. piece of research I always used to talk to women about hormones and are they on HRT are they not because clinically it's been apparent for a long time to me that influence of hormones on tendons and we know that oestrogen particularly is really beneficial for tendons right. mm-hmm. makes them stretchy so as we enter that phase in our lives our tendons become less stretchy more stiff mm. and we're more prone to to injury and tendinopathy but around this glute med tendon because of how again our pelvises are made it seems to be much much more likely so now uh, and the specific hrt was topical oestrogen so oestrogen gel mm. mm-hmm. um, so now that is an absolutely vital part of my practice for for women with specifically glute med tendinopathy but I suspect that's something as we learn more and more will become a big part of our treatment for most tendon problems in women. So there's definitely a a shift in what I see clinically as we Mm. go through Mm -hmm. our our lives as females. Just
2: hearing you speak, and I know Afshan's got a question about, you know, menstrual cycles and periods and everything, but just, it was really fascinating. I used to play rugby in high school and a little beyond that for a club. And you know, I guess a couple of things is that it's fascinating that women are affected more by concussions. Mm-hmm. You know, now that I know more about brain health, I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, rugby is a great game, but you definitely are prone to, you know, brain injury oh, and concussions yeah. and things like that. But I guess one of the things is, is that down to a lack of research like that? We didn't know that before, because it seems like, you know, and I've read and heard in other places, there's a real deficit when it comes to women's sports, yeah. women's medical research in general. Like, yeah. you know, it's only it's become been yeah, and the medical Men, like yeah. people are like wow women are you know so physiologically yeah. different
0: yeah. to men yeah i think um, traditionally sports medicine research has been done on men mm. and and the reason for that is our well, women have these menstrual cycles so that changes everything and so you can't rely on those results because it depends when you do it which is correct however it's not a reason not to look yeah it? You know? yeah, <laughs> more um, yeah like. absolutely and so that is definitely changing like the amount of research that's being done specifically on women and specifically on hormone effects in women now is is massive mm-hmm. the concussion thing for sure Sure, like I started working in rugby in 2009. And then the way that we managed concussion was okay, well, someone's had a head knock. Let's just watch and see how they get on. We just didn't know as much. And and the amount that we know about concussion specifically has just exponentially exploded Mm -hmm. over the past couple of decades. And so how we manage it now is totally different. And Mm. definitely then we had no idea that this increased incidence in women was a thing, you know. And and now we have so much more data on it. it. It has that's been a real progressive
1: area of, of medical research, I would say, recently. Yeah. Like Don mentioned, I mean, uh when I became an athlete, the only concern I had was, oh, how do I train when I have my periods or how that impacts my training? I mean, a lot of what you've spoken about, some of it I've heard of just through my journey as an athlete. But how common is this knowledge? I mean, research aside, which I'm, I'm pretty sure if you're not in the medical profession, you're not going to go through all the research that yeah. out, that is out there. But just... Amongst coaches who train athletes, female athletes, what is the knowledge right now? What are the gaps and what are the opportunities to actually educate them about this? I think it depends on the coach massively. Mm. Um, Some of the coaches
0: I work with in the highest level of sport are absolutely on this, you know, Mm. male and female coaches. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we spend a lot of time uh, at the highest level talking about how we can specifically benefit our female athletes. And we screen for female athlete problems. Like we proactively look for that and address that and um so i think at the highest level of sport it's well known and and it's um you know you talk about these kind of benefits and threats and and it's we can use it to our benefit for sure you know mm. the menstrual cycle particularly like that's a really common thing that you just said about being worried about how do I exercise on my period well actually when you're on your period you may perform best actually mm. I do you perform know? better yeah I'm 100%. Gonna pay me in Running. yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's really yeah. common you know Paul Radcliffe broke the world record for marathon she was yeah. on her period yeah. Like, yeah do you know like she complained of period cramps and broke the world record yeah. so <laughs> um you know it's a distraction isn't it like, actually
1: when I'm cycling and I have cramps they kind of subside as I keep Going mm, yeah. In and and, and we, that's uh, right, medical yeah. facts. Like It's a low yep. hormone phase of, of your cycle. We know that
0: people perform better, but the perception is I don't want to have my period. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes that is just logistics, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. If exactly. you're a diver that's, or a swimmer, you don't really want to have your yeah. period and that's understandable, but we shouldn't be scared about that. We yeah. should be working with yeah. our hormones. I think at the lower level of sport, it's probably not that well known about because mm-hmm. it is still relatively recent information. And also we're not entirely clear still, like we still don't know for sure what is best Mm. and how we can work with that. Best, you know, there are lots of theories, but there's no like there needs to be some more hard evidence before we can say well this. And I suppose it's a bit like everything in medicine. There's no like one size fits all Mm. approach. It obviously it depends how your periods affect Mm. you. Like it's no good me saying oh you'll run the best on your period if you're doubled over in bed. Like you know that's just not going to work. So definitely more research needed. But I think the awareness is growing for sure. Yeah, Yeah. I
2: I did three out of my four ultra cycling races on my period, and I mean it's more logistical annoyance, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I really didn't, you know, I. Really didn't. It wasn't a real physical difference for me. I felt, but it's interesting you say that. Like I remember, you know, going to some coaches here, and one of the coaches like, "What's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "I'm on my period," you know, and he just turns beet red. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but that is changing. Like my cycling coach is really, you know, he. Well, knows all about a woman's cycle mm-hmm. and yeah. implements it into his training and yeah. stuff so yeah. hopefully that'll get yeah
0: better. I think so uh, you know I don't know about you but I remember when I was at school people using their period as a, a reason to get, to get off PE of yeah. you, oh, yeah, you know that was like the exactly. classic excuse wasn't yeah. it and and, and that <laughs> response to I'm on my period beat red like run yeah. away yeah. like hopefully that's gonna change you know yeah. lots more women are speaking yeah. out like um I don't know if you saw in the press recently but they're england women's football team have changed the color yes. of their yes. shorts like you know it's these little things that just make yeah. it more normal because it is normal isn't it yeah. right like 50 of- percent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we should be able to speak about it and not be embarrassed 100%. i think yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so uh One of the issues I I think is also very dear to me because I have gone through uh, eating disorders in the past, but uh, something that has increasingly come up uh, amongst female athletes is low energy availability, also associated to reds uh, in sports. I'd really like for you to break that down for us and yeah. help us understand why it is important to understand this, especially as far as female athletes are concerned.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think. So the first thing to say is that eating disorders in sport and uh, sports people are incredibly common. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we need to work harder at that for sure. There's some horrendous statistic I think like 45% of female athletes have some sort of disordered eating at Mm -hmm. some point in their career which is awful isn't it and again like we should be screening for that and proactively approaching that in elite sport it's harder isn't it when it's not elite sport because you don't have a doctor Mm -hmm. phoning you once a year or even more than that you know so it is really common and it's more common in certain sports. So it's it's more common in sports where clearly you have to make weight. So things like boxing, mm-hmm. um, it's more common in sports where power to weight ratio is important. So
1: um, cycling and, and running. Um, so what is it exactly? Is it looking a certain way or is it like what is it? Depends LA? on this. Well, right. good question.
0: I guess the answer is it's multifactorial mm. always depends on the person. Um, the theory is that in I think it's a bit of both, actually. Um, Mm. The theory is that in those kind of power to weight sports, it's more about performance so Mm. if you're lighter you might perceive that you may run faster and that or or cycle more effectively faster Mm. um, which may be true to a degree but Mm. not past a certain point in aesthetic sports so diving gymnastics the theory is that that's more to do with pressure on how those athletes look but if you talk to athletes it's always a bit of both right Mm. and and a disorder an athlete with a disordered eating often will talk about well you know i worry about how i look in my, Because most sports, you're wearing pretty yeah. minimal clothing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, tight clothing, yeah. small shorts, mm-hmm. bras, swimming costumes. So there's this whole kind of cumulative effect. So I don't think we can blame it on one thing or the other. I mm-hmm. think it depends on the person. It depends on the circumstance. But in terms of low energy availability like that is really common. And low energy availability is not an eating disorder. Yeah. It's not being able to meet your energy requirements mm-hmm. through what you're getting through your diet. And often that is not purposeful. You know, mm-hmm. people are not not restricting their eating. They don't have a body image disorder. Mm -hmm. They don't have disordered eating. They are just maybe doing too much and eating too little. Mm -hmm. The problem with low energy availability is that exactly as the name suggests, it's like driving a car without petrol in it. Like it is detrimental to performance. Um, And if that is allowed to continue then consequences come from that in terms of the physical effects of low energy availability. Relative energy deficiency in sports, so RED-S is the kind of medical terminology that describes those physical consequences of low energy availability. And the question that I'm always asked is like, is this RED-S or is it low energy availability? And the answer is... It's grey in between those. There's Mm -hmm. no like one cutoff that Mm -hmm. says that somebody is
1: now in red S whereas previously they were But the factors that bring it together are almost identical or the same. Yeah, and there's a traffic-like system. The
0: International Olympic Committee uh, did a load of research into this and published this kind of best practice uh, paper. And there's a traffic-like system that you can use to decide whether somebody is like reaching a diagnosis of red S. And so that's things like having no periods. So periods haven't Mm -hmm. stopped. So that happens... It's called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And it happens because your body decides you're not in a state to have babies. Like if we take it back mm. to evolution, that's what happens. Like, yeah. so, you know, when we were cavemen and there's no food and the dinosaurs are chasing us all the time, we don't want to get pregnant. Right. Mm. So the body switches it off. And and that's exactly what happens when we're overexercising and under fueling. Mm. the body switches off that reproductive system. So that's a kind of flag for for a red S. Bone health then suffers. So with low hormones, you see uh, increased incidence of bone stress and bone thinning. So osteopenia, which is milder thing of the bones and osteoporosis, which is that kind of clinical diagnosis. If thinning makes it sound like they get smaller, they don't, Mm. they just get less dense, like low bone density. It can be associated with disordered eating and Mm -hmm. and eating disorders, (laughs) but not always, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can be because a fine line, right, in yeah. sport and, and body mass is a performance metric. We have to acknowledge that. Yeah. But that fine line, like anything in sport can sometimes be, be pushed a little bit mm-hmm. too
1: far. This episode is supported by Deep Dive Dubai. We know that our listeners love awesome adventures. And take it from us, it doesn't get more awe inspiring than the world's deepest pool.
2: Measuring a record breaking 60 meters, Deep Dive Dubai gives both scuba and free divers the ability to discover an underwater world complete with the latest in
1: dive technology and an abandoned sunken city. For those new to diving, like me, it's the ideal place to get started. And for those experienced to expert divers out there, it's the perfect place to hone your skills with exceptional facilities, expert staff, and state-of-the-art technology. Since it opened in 2021, it has
2: mesmerized visitors and continues to deliver extraordinary experiences seven days a week. For more information and to book your experience, visit deepdivedubai.com. For me... I probably, you know, coming up like in universe, I was in university in the early 2000s and stuff. And, you know, I think there was a whole resurgence recently of like thin is in, you know, mm. which is worrying. And definitely when I was, you know, at that age, really impressionable and stuff, I would say I didn't have an eating disorder, but definitely disordered, eating, mm. you know, on occasion. And sport for me, actually you know, made me look at food in a whole new light. Food is fuel, you know, to me now. And I'm less concerned about the aesthetics and more concerned about how I'm feeling on a bike. And definitely with ultra cycling, like food is key. (laughs) When you're burning, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of calories in a day, a day's cycling, like you have to eat. There's no two ways about it. But one of the things I think, you know, my coach even said this as well. Some of, you know, his colleagues who are cycling coaches, when they have a lot of women, and you know they're all concerned with weight loss. Mm. And then I hear, particularly, you know, I've got a different relationship with food but due to ultra cycling. You know, I always eat before I train now. Mm. I, maybe I didn't before, but I I have to, or else I'm just not going to have a good ride. But you hear these conversations in the cycling community too. Oh, you should ride fasted. Mm. You know, what would you say? Like, is that advisable to do that or? And- <laughs>
0: Not if you want to perform, Uh, Mm. you know, I I think if we are looking at the bare bones of what we're trying to achieve from training, obviously everyone has different requirements from their training, Mm. right? Maybe not everybody wants to improve, but if you are looking to make physical gains from your training, Mm. then you have to give your body the building blocks to do that. And so personally, I, I don't think that especially for something like ultra cycling like you know why it's going back to that car analogy like why would you drive your car with no petrol you can't right so you can try and get through and your body has some cool and clever ways of pulling uh, energy from other sources but what i see in clinical a lot from people who train fasted and then sometimes you know we all have busy lives you can finish your cycle and before you know it, it's 3 hours and you've not eaten yep. or you know you go take the kids to school or go to work and and the problem with that is you're not giving your body the building blocks to recover at the time that it needs it mm-hmm. and so it starts to pull from elsewhere cuz like mm-hmm. i said it's clever and it will do that but that's when i see things like bone stress injuries mm-hmm. so um there's some good evidence that fueling within the first 20 minutes post-activity can reduce that. Like Mm. you give yourself the building blocks for recovery and that Mm -hmm. bone turnover is a normal part of exercise. Like you have bone stress related to activity that turns over all the time. And and those bone stress injuries only happen when your body can't keep up. And if you exercise fasted and don't fuel afterwards, even if you get the right amount of calories in the day in total, if you're not putting them at that period of time, your risk of bone stress Mm. goes up. So for me, I think it's all about Eating the right stuff around when you want to be exercising. Mm -hmm. So some protein, some carbs before and after Mm -hmm. in in that little golden window of opportunity is so important. Mm -hmm.
2: You mentioned some of the like, you know, the short term or, you know, symptoms of LEA, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not having your period Mm -hmm. or loss of bone density. What are Mm -hmm. some of the long-term repercussions?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's loads. It affects everybody's system, right? Mm. So, um, and there's some pretty scary stuff. Like if you if you really drill down, so if you think you're putting yourself into like a premature menopause, essentially that's what you're doing. You're switching off your hypothalamic axis, mm. um, and so low bone density is a, a part of that low mood comes with that mm. there's cardiovascular effects so we know that with low estrogen women are more likely to get atherosclerosis so that's uh, furring of the arteries which mm-hmm. is something that should happen in when we're much older you know the effects on metabolism like your metabolism drops because you go into this starvation mode your body's trying to protect yourself it, it doesn't there's no system that it doesn't affect right mm-hmm. that's, that's probably the the mm. short-term answer and and for for that long-term health it's just it's it's not a good Place to mm. be, and and so what we should be doing is trying to pick that up early, trying to pick it up at the low energy availability stage before we get to those mm. consequences. Because actually, the body can put up with a lot before it starts to switch off your mm, menstrual right. cycle. You know,
1: so I started training when I was at the peak of my eating disorders. So you can say that I got LEA because of my eating disorders. I think one kind of fed into the other. um I lost my period, like you mentioned. That's a very common. Um, risk factor and it happens. However, I didn't have all this information back then when I was starting off and I didn't kind of associate the two. And I was like, okay, you know, I've lost my period because I did lose a lot of weight mm-hmm. at the same time. They'll come back. Uh, didn't have any, I didn't have a coach that at that point to tell me that, oh, you need to go and kind of see a doctor because this is not right or you're under eating and overperforming can coaches identify this and what are like the risk factors that they should be looking out for or, you know, the red flags that they should be looking out for when they're coaching female athletes? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if you are
0: committed to being a coach, that's part of it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. the, The health of your athletes is partly your responsibility if you're programming for somebody. And so, you know, I think as a coach, Watching for someone who's maybe actively not fueling around training, you mm-hmm. know, going for breakfast, people not eating or skipping that breakfast, people losing significant amounts of weight. Having those conversations and I suppose normalizing those conversations around food and uh, it this shouldn't be taboo just like periods, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like there is still a taboo around disordered eating for sure but I, I don't think there should be. I think we should be able to have conversations around weight that don't feel threatening, um, mm-hmm. that are professional and not banter. Like that's, that's important. You know, I think if we can get to that stage, then there's a much more open dialogue around that. So there are, there are a few more like tools that are formal, like for assessment tools. Um there's a, a Red S clinical assessment tool, but that's clinical like so i guess from a coach's perspective they'd want to be having a good relationship with a doctor that they could refer to for further assessment some sports use that don't have a doctor so like kind of sub elite level use a bdq as a assessment for eating disorder so that's like a self-assessment tool bdq that you can just fill out you know that is something that a coach could use and and use it as a flag and send those people on if they were concerned, or maybe use that as a framework to talk through with with their athlete if they were worried. I think having a bit of a framework around a discussion, if it's something they didn't feel comfortable with, would be a good start. And the BDQ is a good way to do that, you know. But the start of that is having a good relationship with the athlete mm-hmm. and an open dialogue, isn't it? Otherwise those conversations can't be had.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think, like, I mean, there's been a reckoning really particularly in North America when it comes to gymnastics and, you know, from across many different issues within Mm -hmm. that sport, but obviously diet, you know, and pushing these athletes to the extreme is one element of that. Do you still think that's prevalent in sport?
0: I think it's less prevalent now than it was. But yeah, I think particularly in those aesthetic sports, Mm -hmm. I think the top level loads of work has been done. Mm -hmm. And so I would hope that across most countries in the world now at the top level of those athletic sports, everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet in that as a professional structured performance-based conversation but I don't think that happens at all levels of sport Mm -hmm. um because I I think and unfortunately I think that probably is coach led at grassroots Mm. and that those it tends to be in those sports right that people are coaching who are athletes and this is how I was spoken to as an athlete about Mm. my body so this is how I'm going to speak to my athletes about their bodies and and so that just takes a little bit of training doesn't it to change that attitude so yeah I I think and hopefully this will be like a top-down trickle right that the way that we approach it changes at the top level of sport and then everyone
1: else sees that
0: and changes Mm -hmm. their approach too.
1: Um, this may be a little controversial because sports is about performance, especially if you're an elite sport, but do you think we should be kind of looking at sport more than performance and, and like actually focusing on the long-term benefits on the athlete not just the short-term performance that they can like bring home a medal or bring home a trophy yeah
0: of course
1: definitely like yeah. particularly for a
0: medical perspective you know like as a sports doctor you have your foot in two camps there's the performance side and there's the health side and I believe as a doctor you have to have a foot in both camps like, that's mm-hmm. super important you can't be all in the performance side but equally you have to acknowledge the difference in elite athletes to people who you might see in clinic who like to go for a run at the weekend like that is different but you have to think about the long-term health of the athlete as a as a doctor now some of those conversations like they will be different and I have these conversations in clinic every day you know I see someone uh, like the commonest thing that I talk about this with is is people with pelvic pain so there's a type of injury you can get where you get pain in your pelvis it's really painful and it takes ages to rehab from now if that were an elite athlete it's really common in football change of direction sports if you have the world cup final in three weeks time we would talk about doing a steroid injection to mask the pain and allow you to play Mm. because that's the goal and then you deal with the consequences Mm. of rehab but if that would happen to you i would be saying to you We don't have a World Cup final in two weeks time. Maybe Mm. we do. (laughs) But, you know, what we're trying to do is get you better long term, get your health good long term. And so there is subtle differences in how we would approach it. But the overall focus as a doctor should be on that long term health. Definitely.
1: Because I've um, I, I, I train with a lot of triathletes at the moment. I myself am not a triathlete, but the ones that have these big goals, right? Like, you know, they're maybe doing an Ironman, for example, they'll they change their diet drastically because they want to be a certain weight to run or because if you're lighter, you run faster, Mm. you're faster on the bike, you're probably faster on the swim as well. So it's just like, sometimes I'm, I question that because of course I have a background of eating disorders. So every time someone tells me that they're on a diet, I kind Mm. of like just completely like, you know, close up and I'm just, you know, I'm probably even (laughs) questioning every decision they make. So to me, it's just that should they be prioritizing performance over like their health their at health. this point yeah. yeah
0: and i guess that goes back to that low energy availability doesn't yeah. like you know if you're 130 kilos and you want to get down to a normal bmi then that's positive for your health mm. but if you start off at 50 kilos and you want to get to Forty-five, mm-hmm. then that's not going to be beneficial. Oh, yeah. I guess the other thing I would say, particularly about endurance sport and weight loss, is that exercising for that level of endurance sport in a calorie deficit, mm. which is what you would have to be in to lose weight, is tricky. And that's when we see those bone stress injuries. That's when we see tendon yeah. issues because you're asking a huge volume from your body, particularly mm. if because uh, most of these people, right, they're not just doing triathlon and then going home and tra- and sleeping, right? They're not. Mm. They have families and jobs oh, and, yeah. and and you know, you have a bucket and it's a certain size and everything you put into that bucket counts. Training is part of that, but everything else in your life is a part of that. And there's only so much capacity that that bucket has. And if you overdo that from any part, you know, that red S risk factor is stress and cortisol response that comes with that. And so people that do that volume of stuff and diet at the same time, I worry about. Yeah. uh, Because we do, I see injuries for sure. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, I mean, I'm quite fortunate. Touch wood. I've had no injuries related to sport. It's mainly just me being clumsy (laughs) (laughs) in my life. (laughs) But, um, it's, you know, it's really interesting to hear you say that because like my first ultra, I was definitely like, I didn't understand fueling. It wasn't like I was trying, but I just didn't simply eat enough because I just didn't know, Mm. you know? And I came back from that race and I got so thin. Mm. Like I lost probably like four or five kilos Mm. after the race. Like, in addition to what I lost on the race, but I'm just so thankful. Like, nothing, you know, my body didn't, wasn't, uh, I would, you know, I I was probably really prone to injuries Mm -hmm. at that time. And I'm just really thankful that, yeah, I didn't get any. Go away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: To be honest, I mean, when I started in endurance sports, you know, working with my coach, and I have a fantastic coach who actually understands this, um, I think we had a lot of discussions about how I feared increasing my calorie intake or my carbohydrate intake yeah. while I was riding or while I was running I yeah. would just I would I would eat well outside of the training but like during the training I'm like oh I've eaten I've 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 eaten everything the night before The moments before the run or the ride, why do I need to eat during? And I think it was like a relearning and a rewiring Mm, process for me. And it's still a process for me because it's just something that I manage on a day-to-day basis. So it's just every time I sit down with him and we have a conversation, it's very productive because it has shown me that I have become a better performer Mm -hmm. only because Mm -hmm. I'm eating well, right? Right. Like it's not like the more I restrict, the worse it becomes and and the worse I feel after it as yeah. well so yeah, yeah.
2: um we're gonna change uh course in a minute but before we do I wanted to ask if there's any last words related to you
0: know food performance LEA. and some
1: of the current work that you may be doing in that area as well
0: yeah I think um I guess for me it's just the the importance is just awareness I would say mm. yeah? and I think you hit the nail on the head there just saying like you just weren't aware of how you should be fueling, and I think that is really common Mm. um and I see a lot of people in my clinic setting who are tired they come feeling tired and they don't understand why and when you or or they've maybe had one thing I haven't touched on is the immune suppression that happens with Mm. low energy availability and they just don't understand why and actually when you pick it apart like it's not surprising that that person is tired they're they're pushing their body on on not enough fuel. And Mm. and so I think it's easy to look for other solutions, isn't it? And hope that everything else is okay but actually I think if we are really critical of what we're asking and what we're putting into our bodies then we can usually make sense of that kind of thing and and the early identification and adjustment is key you Mm. know we're not asking people to eat huge amounts that make them feel uncomfortable it's not about that it's about eating enough so Mm -hmm. that you're not in that deficit so
1: yeah awareness would be my take-home message Mm. great
2: Thank you so much for listening today.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends,
2: and even frenemies or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only.
1: And visit us on TheMetalSet.com for more stories and resources.
2: Thanks again for listening.
1: Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.